Welcome to episode 40 of the Seeking the Military Suicide Solution podcast brought to you by the Military Times. I'm Dwayne France. And I'm Doc Shauna Springer. And we'd like to thank you for taking the time to learn more about suicide in the military-affiliated population. To check out all the shows, search for STMSS in the Google Play or Apple App Store, and you can download an app that will allow you to listen to all the episodes, check out the show notes, and share the episodes with someone that you think needs to hear it. Thanks again to everybody for joining us to listen to an honest conversation about service member, veteran, and military family suicide. Today's guest approaches military and veteran suicide prevention from the direction of the veteran himself. Shauna, what can you tell us about our guest? Yeah, so David Bachman is a warrior's warrior. He's a 2-7 Marine who has been on the very tip of the spear. He commands respect, and he has a very warm heart. More than once, David has jumped on his motorcycle with very little notice and come hundreds of miles through bad weather to support one of his brothers or to support me. I felt it was critical to bring David on and hear what he has to share. Together, he and I have gone to reunions where Marines have been losing many to suicide. And together we have spoken to them. And together we have helped save lives in those units. David has things to share that we shouldn't miss. Some important truths about how David and many of his brothers in arms see things. I have learned so much from David and his brother Marines in my journey as a healer and in my understanding of what can prevent suicide. What they've taught me over several years has been critical in helping me adapt my approach to be of service to warriors. Yes, I'm glad that we were able to have uh, David and, and not just David himself, but but the veterans that David represents to be able to come on the show and share a very important perspective. So we'll get into my conversation with David and come back afterwards to pull out some of the key points. Being in this from a mental health professional standpoint and taking a look at this, 1-7 and 2-7 Marines, you were part of 2-7 uh, I believe, and they've been devastated by suicide over the last 15, now approaching 20 years. I'm wondering what it's like for you to see that happening in the veterans, maybe the folks you served with or the people that served in 1727 after you. It's devastating. The Marine Corps operates from a standpoint that we leave no Marine behind and we've left some of these guys behind and that's frustrating to me. And I try to get as many people involved in the retreats and stuff as I can so that we can get them in contact with people who can actually help them and get them a little support system set up of people that they can call if they're having a rough night or whatever. So from your standpoint as a Marine, as somebody who's trying to help fellow Marines, what is it that's happening that you've seen that's breaking down to get these veterans in a place where suicide's an option? I kind of want to say they don't have anybody to talk to, but I don't really think it's that. I think it's more of the perfect storm scenario. I think most people go through and they have this grief in them, and then there's little bitty things that just work up to create this perfect storm, and then Marines aren't scared to pull the trigger, so it kind of is what it is. But I think people seek help from people who can't relate. I think lots of time guys try to talk to their wives or a family member or somebody that hasn't been where we've been. And I don't think they always get the right reaction. 
because everybody thinks that suicide is something that's just extremely selfish act. And a lot of times with veterans, I don't think it is so much. I think it's more of them thinking of themselves as a threat and not being scared to take out that threat. I think that they really feel like they're doing their family a favor by checking out. And, and I think that's a problem we, we're going to have to figure out. You know, David, you just literally hit... There's a concept from us in the mental health profession called the interpersonal theory of suicide and what kind of comes together to cause somebody to take their own life. First is a sense of isolation or separatedness. Second is a sense of burdensomeness, like I'm a burden on somebody else. And third is the ability to enact lethal means. Like you said, Marines can pull the trigger easily. Veterans can pull the trigger easily. That's exactly what you're talking about is a veteran that reaches out and can't connect to the people who feels like they're a burden or, or even more so as a danger, like you said, and then pulling the trigger is easy. You said about grief, right? You said that sort of this grief comes on and then it's a perfect storm. And then there's a, a, a bunch of other little stuff, whether it's finances, employment. What is it about the grief? You talking about grief when you're leaving the Marine Corps? No, I think more like when people get themselves in isolation, they tend to think about traumatic things that have happened to us and people have certain guilt from combat or from surviving combat and losing a buddy a bottle buddy or something and uh, i think to a lot of people that can be really overwhelming but what's so odd to me and, and you touched on it a minute ago is that when you isolate yourself marines that stay in the marine corps are surrounded by that warrior culture when you get out, you got nobody, you know, that really can relate to where you've been and what you've done. And, and that can be rough. I've had people say, I want to go back in the military because everybody there is just as crazy as I am. And so I don't feel as crazy when I'm there. Was the transition out of the Marine Corps difficult for you? When I first got out, I went to Atlanta and I did a, a contract garden some bases and armories over there. So I worked day in and day out with a bunch of veterans. So for those first two and a half years out of the Marine Corps, I still had that culture. There was a bunch of retired army guys mm -hmm. and I think we had two or three Marines there. And uh, so I still had that culture. And when I came back to West Texas and I started working in oil field and stuff, that's when it started. I was the guy that would go off on everybody if they weren't doing what they're supposed to do. And it's just, that's the way I was at that time. And it's, Take, I'm talking about like 2007, 2008. And so I think I've evolved quite a bit from there as far as the way I deal with people. <laughs> but then there's that difficulty. To be honest, that's what I do. I still work with veterans every day. My transition, quote unquote, has been easy because I'm still involved in the military culture, working with veterans as a therapist, living outside of Fort Carson, going to the commissary. All of this stuff is still there. But then you get out and you feel like a stranger in a strange land. Um, and, and over time, you said that you reached out to go to the VA for mental health support. I'd ended up there and I made the mistake of answering all their questions in the beginning of one of the doctor's appointments, which I'll never do that again. I ended up filling out questionnaires and all this stuff that were just really intrusive questions that quite frankly, they hadn't earned enough trust from me to, for me to answer. And so there was a lot of that where I think they come from a position of implied authority where you're going to answer what they want to know. 
so that they can help you. And if you don't, then they don't really care if they help you or not. And, and that, and maybe that's just my perception of it, but that's the way it seemed to me. And I wanted no part of it. And then of course we're talking 2010 was when they were just handing out drugs to everybody. And, uh, I didn't want any part of that. And, uh, I've always had this standpoint from the time I got out, the, my oath of enlistment, although my enlistment expired, my oath did not and keeping myself where I'm combat ready somewhat for being an old fat guy, but I didn't want to be on psych drugs or anything like that. I didn't want any part of it. And so in, in that first attempt to reach out for help, whether you were struggling significantly or you were just like, hey, maybe it's time for me to start dealing with some of this stuff that happened while I was deployed. I've got this baggage and I want to deal with it. And then you reached out and you had that negative experience. Did it keep you from seeking more help? I didn't talk to mental health at the VA again for 10 years after that. Wow. Yeah. So for those 10 years, I was just on my own. Then it was strange. I got a call from a buddy of mine, a 2-7 Marine, Jeremy Rosales, and they were doing a reunion up at his place in Forest Ranch, California, up from Chico. And he said, man, this company, they're putting on this deal at my house and they're paying for everybody's flights and you just come down here and we'll drink beer. And <laughs> all right, I'm in. And we'd met up a couple of times. We both ride Harleys all back and forth across the country all the time. And so we've met up a couple of times since we were in together. And uh, so I said, yeah, I'm in. And so they got me a ticket and I flew up there. And that's where I met Doc Springer and the TAPS organization. And just some really good people and got some really good stories. And I said, this is something that I want to be involved in if I can help anybody, especially these younger guys. I was in from 2001 to 2005. I did a deployment to Japan where we got stopped, moved over there for, I think, 10 or 11 months. And I did one combat deployment in Iraq in 2004. And uh, some of these younger Marines did five deployments, five combat deployments. Seven months over, six months back. Seven months over, six months back. Seven months over, six months back. And uh, it's just crazy to think about that at that age, not having any tools to deal with the stress and the grief of that. Coming back and trying to deal with that is, it's overwhelming when you think about it at the age of 22 or 23 years old. And I think that's something that those who aren't involved in the military really don't understand. They just think, okay, you're going away and you're coming back. But 2004 in Iraq was no joke. It was the Wild West. I was there 06, 07, and it was starting to transition. But 04 in the Anbar province, if likely where a lot of the Marines were. That's where we were. Right. And, and the fact that now combat back to back, back to back. People don't seem to understand the toll psychologically. And if you say that I have that baggage from one deployment in 04 in Anbar, how much more baggage do these young Marines have after three, four, five bouncing between Anbar and Helmand? Overwhelming. The other thing that's, that's strange, that even though some of these, we, we do a reunion in Crandall, Texas every year and it's going to be in Kansas this year but it's a group of two three marines and uh, a buddy of mine master sergeant para he was with 27 then went to 23 so he invited some of us older 27 guys to come out there and uh, these two three marines they're in that mid 20s mid to late 20s age bracket 
And it's so strange because even though they have, some of them have three, four, five combat deployments, they look up to us older guys because we were there before. And so you speak from a position of authority because for one, you're still around 15 years later. And then they, they say, we all pretty much wrote the SOPs for what we did. And so there's that position of respect. And then it's wild because the generations have changed so much as far as warrior culture and just culture of men in our country in general. And so when you ride up in there on, in a, on a Harley and, and stuff like that, you, people are like, eh, maybe this guy's all right. And so you can, if you open up, then those guys will open up. And that's what they need is to talk about some of the stuff with people that can relate instead of carrying that baggage and then lashing out at people that for one can't understand and people that they truly care about, they don't want to lash out at, but. And so it's interesting for me to hear this difference between you going to the VA and them assuming they have a level of authority, but don't have that trust. That's what you were just talking about is this combination of both trust and authority. And then 10 years later, working with Doc Springer and TAPS and seeing a different type of interaction with a mental health professional. What was different between those two times for you? Doc just come, when I say Doc, I'm talking about Doc Springer. She come at us in just this way of, I'm here to help if I can help. And she's a pretty knowledgeable person, but she just engrossed herself in our culture and just very unintrusive. And it was just a totally different atmosphere than being at the VA. We're sitting in my buddy's yard having a cold beer. And I think when you loosen all the restrictions, it changes the comfort level for us. So one of the first things when you walk into mental health, they, they ask a, a series of intrusive questions. And a lot of them are about firearms and and weapons and uh, we're a warrior culture we have guns that's going to happen and uh, a lot of guys that have come back and are combat veterans that's part of their everyday life their comfort is being able to protect yourself and when you come from a place where you've seen true evil in this world that's important to us and the idea that you're going to ask questions like do you own a firearm how many firearms do you have in your house this kind of stuff is it's, it's not something you ask somebody that's a stranger. If you don't come from a position where you've already earned my trust, that's not your business. And that's what I wrote on their thing. And uh, you have to earn somebody's trust before you can ask questions that could appear to be intrusive like that. But as far as the VA is, it seems this is their protocol and we're going to fill out all these forms and this, that, and the other. And it, it doesn't create a situation where people want to come in and be open. And so for, for that, a lot of people just don't go in there. And I think from the mental health standpoint, they go, we need to know if this guy is a risk to himself and if he has the means to hurt himself. I understand that. But that being said, they're missing so many people that they could be treating because they come in without the trust and they become intrusive. And then we don't go in there at all. You know, that's something that you just said. And I'm a knife guy, not a gun guy, but it's all about, it's folks get into what they get into after the military, but you said it's very personal. It's for many veterans, and, and this is something I'm forming in my thought right now. It's don't ask me what happens when the bedroom door closes with my spouse. Don't ask me how I discipline my children. These are very personal things, 
and firearms in that same way. This is some personal stuff, right? You don't, this isn't boot camp. I'm not dropping my drawers and showing you everything immediately because there's some things that are deeply personal and you see firearms in the same way. Very much. But it, it, what's weird is it appears to me that they want this shift of power where you hand them the power to your life because they're the expert and then they'll tell you what you need to do. And that's not the way that works. You have to come from a position of trust where you share some and I share some, and then we can have a dialogue where we're actually getting somewhere. And, and I have definitely seen that experience. I, I get this where enlisted personnel, definitely the folks with the paper on the wall, they were the officers. And, and in the military, you did what the officers told you to do. And sometimes I see veterans that go into the VA and go into a mental health professional and say, hey, you're the doc. I'm just going to do what you tell me to do because you're the expert and I'm not. And it is that sometimes we do give away that power instead of advocating for ourselves. Yeah, but I feel like the VA especially is systematically set up in that format and it shouldn't be. That is definitely some great points. And here we're talking about what we do when we help veterans who are in crisis. How do we get them there? And what do we do with veterans to keep them from getting into a suicidal state? One of the biggest things that we're focusing on in this show is some of the, what can people do, right? What, what are some action steps that people can take when it comes to preventing suicide? You're not trying to prevent suicide in all veterans everywhere. You're just focusing on your group, your tribe, one seven, two seven, two three Marines. What are some action steps that people can take to affect suicide in their own network? What we've done is we'll set up. I have a group of buddies that you have like your own little fire team. If you're having a rough day or something, you have three or four guys that you know will answer the phone if you call, if you need to talk. I've had guys call me at three o'clock in the morning and I answer my phone. And that's it's. That's what we do. Back up our brother's play. There's another. Have you heard anything about the Warrior Box, the ammo can yep. story with Brian Vargas? That's a tool that a lot of Marines have given some really positive feedback on. So what this is, you take an ammo can, and if you have any situations where you feel like harming yourself, you have this ammo can full of things that remind you of all the reasons you're still in the fight. And you have to go through those things before you can act on anything. And so you might have pictures that your kids drew you, or you might have medals from the Marine Corps or from the military, just things that are close and dear to your heart, things that remind you of family and friends and why you're still here. And uh, it's a barrier that gives you a minute to reflect before something bad could happen. This is something like the keys to the gun safe is at the bottom of the warrior box or, or your or the firing pin. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is definitely something, anything that puts time between that urge and the action, but also, like you said, it reminds us while we're here. David, I, I really appreciate the work that you're doing. I'm hearing great stuff and, uh, and I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Yes, sir. One of our previous guests said, if we're not listening to the families who have lost someone to suicide, then we're missing a critical component to the conversation. And I think that's true if we're also not including voices like David's. Oh, absolutely. I realize that some of the things that David shared 
will be hard to hear and may create frustration or possibly even anger amongst some who serve in the VA. Yet if we truly wanna understand why 14 of 20 veterans who die by suicide are not engaged in care at the VA, we have to learn about the obstacles we need to overcome for warriors like David. As he said, he had experiences during his first time engaging in care that led him to drop out for more than 10 years. It stands to reason that if we want to gain insight into barriers to care, we must venture far afield from our usual setting. We won't get these insights from the veterans who are engaging in care, the VA. We have to connect with veterans in the places where they gather, outside of clinical spaces, the ones that we construct for them. The first time I met David was at a highly impactful TAPS hosted weekend in Northern California. In that space during that weekend, a group of two dozen Marines opened up and shared the pain of their grief and loss. That weekend though was spurred by a larger movement within their group that had started a few years prior by that group of Marines to help each other heal. That movement continues. I have now gone in and attended several years of that gathering as a trusted advisor in their circle. These weekends have not only helped me to see where the primary areas of cultural disconnection are in standard clinical settings, they've also shown me that our greatest power lies in facilitating what warriors do so beautifully for each other. Walking with these warriors is one of the greatest privileges in my life. And people like David continue to show up as he did here in sharing these insights. My hope is that listeners can discern that while his comments may be hard to hear, they come from a place of wanting to help healers understand where disconnections occur so that this divide can be bridged more effectively in the future. You know, that was always something that when I was a leader in the military, if I was coming up with an idea, a program or a, a just a way to accomplish a mission or something like that, I realized that I had to not only consider my my assets who i had the soldiers that were in my in my unit but also understand how they were going to do this right because this was ultimately my best laid plans were going to be executed by the individuals on the ground and so if i didn't take into account what they thought about it what they felt about it and, and yes it's about giving orders but it's also about leading men and women but if and it goes back to what i said before if voices like david's or veterans like him are not involved in even clinical decisions, but especially suicide prevention decisions, then we're going to get that gap you were just talking about. Yeah, that is one of my driving visions is to get into a place where I can train up and equip the peer support specialists, the veterans on the ground, the warriors in these circles to really help them do what they do for each other so beautifully. That is definitely a huge way that I've adapted my approach because of what I've learned from David and his brothers. Also, this interview showed me irrefutably that David took the time to read my book, Warrior. He relayed in such a straightforward, practical way, which you noted, Dwayne, the essence of concepts like Thomas Joyner's interpersonal model. I've never heard as clear and coherent a description as I did on this episode from a Marine. He worked to explain the model to us, and he was right on target. He also talks about some of the specific practical suicide prevention tools that I've co-developed with Warriors. He mentioned the Warrior Box that Marine Corps veteran Brian Vargas and I co-developed, an intervention that's gotten real traction 
in these off-the-grid places where warriors gather. It's tangible and it's action-oriented. We use this tool to help develop insight about the suicidal mind, psychological state of people when they are on the ropes with their demons. In many cases, it has brought warriors back from the edge of despair. Most of all, because it was co-developed with a Marine, Brian Vargas, it fits seamlessly into the spaces where warriors gather and they help each other to heal. I'm so grateful for the way that David and his brothers continually push my thinking and partner with me to develop practical tools that get real traction within their groups. And that's something is as we're developing interventions, that it, and again, it goes back to maybe this theme in this particular conversation, but it has to have the voice of the end user in it or else it's not going to be effective. Or organizations will partner with the clients that they're going to be serving to be able to come up with interventions and programs and things that are actually going to work because, and again, not just because it's, I guess, tacitly approved or there's a showpiece out in front that's a mouthpiece, but really, truly, it is addressing the culture of that community and that organization. Yeah, you know, I've been thinking a lot about what innovation is, and there's a saying that there's nothing new under the sun. And if that's true, then perhaps innovation is about fusion of what is already there. And for me, the best way to innovate has always been partnering with warriors and understanding their mentality and their warrior ethos, and then pairing that with the psychological insights that I can contribute. And so I absolutely agree and think that the end user needs to have an equal voice and really influence uh, the interventions that are designed for them. No, that's a great point. Uh, There may not be anything new under the sun, but there's probably definitely an infinite number of ways that all of those things under the sun can be used and used in different ways. And it it is no more about creating something than organizing the things that have already been created, which again is where we're at trying to take this federal state local connection. And how do we take what we know works that we know what the research says works from the national level, but how we can practically apply that in the ground level. And so that's the goal. We appreciate everybody for taking the time to check out the show. Make sure to take a look at the show notes, which you can find at bettermentalhealth.com forward slash STMSS40, or by downloading the app by searching STMSS in the Apple app or Google Play stores. In the show notes, you can get the links to everything we talked about in this episode, as well as finding the show on militarytimes.com. As a reminder, you can ask us questions, let us know what you thought about the show by going to our Facebook group, moderated by the outstanding D. James, by going to bettermentalhealth.com forward slash group. You can find out more about the work that Shauna is doing by checking out her latest book, Warrior, How to Support Those Who Protect Us, and the work that I'm doing by checking out my latest book, Military in the Rearview Mirror, Mental Health and Wellness in Post-Military Life. Both are available on Amazon, and we'll have links to them in the show notes. Just a reminder that the guests and reflections on this show are for informational purposes only and should not be considered professional advice. While Dwayne and I are mental health professionals, we are not your mental health professionals. We always recommend that you discuss these things with a licensed clinician. And always remember, you can connect with the Veteran Crisis Line by calling 1-800-273-8255 and pressing 1. Chat online with them at veterancrisisline.net or texting 838255. Thanks again for joining us to talk about seeking the military suicide solution. And make sure to follow Military Times on social media to keep up with the latest shows. Join us next time for another great episode. And until then, remember, you're not alone, ever.